Hello and welcome to the K Voices podcast. This podcast follows the K Enterprise's mission to implement holistic solutions for security, environmental, and social problems. Through this podcast, K Enterprises and MI Cynic join forces to talk about today's areas of concern and present innovative solutions. Hello and welcome to another episode of K Voices. We'll be talking about Afghanistan. To that end, I've invited Mr. Gracias Kasonga, founder and CEO of K Enterprises, an international development and trade organization firm specializing in modernization, security and infrastructure, as well as Mr. Elliot Wilson, author, journalist, broadcaster and advisor working in strategy, PR, as well as commentator on politics and parliament. He's the co-founder of PivotPoint, a strategic advisory and PR consultancy, clerk in the House of Commons, serving on several select committees. Chief writer, then head of research for Right Angles, a London-based reputation management practice. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And I'm very excited to uh, to have this conversation on uh, what is most likely the the most pressing issue that uh, we're certainly dealing with today? Uh, Gracias. You've touched on the issue of negotiations, and I think one of the prerequisites that you're going to have whenever you have a negotiation between peoples or governments is that at the very least you're going to need to know what is being negotiated and having a clear understanding of what the situation on the ground is from either end. So I think. A certain amount of demystification and a certain amount of chasing the truth is needed. And this is where K-Voices stands the loudest, because uh, this podcast, more than anything, believes we need to discover the truth, because without discovering the truth, we can't offer a solution. And I would say that there is a commonality towards our purpose and what is happening today in Afghanistan. Uh, we need to be able to arrive at the truth, uncomfortable, unfashionable, and hard as it may be. And once we're able to arrive at that truth, which isn't always a given with a lot of news media that have their own agendas and their own interests, whatever those might be, um, then we're able to actually offer up solutions that have a chance of succeeding. In this case, gracias, as you were mentioning, in getting to that negotiating table and finding that there may be more positive outcomes out of that than there ever were uh, 20 years of boots on the ground. Um, and in, as far as that goes, I'd like to highlight something that is being talked about a lot today in, in the news cycle, and that is, of course, uh, the intense anxiety and fear about what the comeback of the Taliban might mean for women and uh, in Afghanistan. And um, just pulling out a, a title from The Atlantic, uh, the Taliban's return is catastrophic for women, all in caps. And that was a great article from The Atlantic. And uh, and I think I wanted to pull that headline out because in many ways, it's very it's very neat summary, I think, of of what a lot of Western media is, is, is saying and feeling, anxiety, dread, uh, doom and gloom. But what I'd like to put across to, to the panel today is in the spirit of trying to arrive at uh, the hard truths 
the not so much the black and whites, but the gray areas that inevitably we are going to have to look at if we are also going to be uh, dealing with the Taliban in a realistic fashion and not from an ideological position. Is uh, is there anything more to add to this? Because anthropologically, um, you know, there's some question marks there as to whether uh, the intention of the Taliban truly is uh, an all-out anti-female stance uh, or whether this has been colored after many years of um, the war on terror and whatever it might be. So my question to the panel is, is it conceivable that uh, some women in Afghanistan, uh, especially mothers perhaps, uh, may indeed have colluded and vehemently championed the return of the Taliban because they may inevitably have seen their interests aligned with the Taliban, unthinkable as that might be for a Western audience. Um, is this something that we should consider? And is there any useful uh, thing we might gain uh, from continuing this line of thought? Well, Thomas, I, it was the uh, it was the great feminist Gloria Steinem who said the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And I think there's there's an instinctive problem here that we assume on the one hand we know let let's take this from the bottom we know that the particular form of Islam which is practiced by the Taliban and by others is at its heart fundamentally not about women's rights. Uh, women are second-class citizens at best, their rights, as far as they are even rights, are heavily curtailed. They're not allowed to do, they're not allowed to operate independently of the male members of their family, essentially, from their, from their father to their husband to their sons. Now, we, of course, regard that in the West with horror because it, it harks back to a, a time which in Western society we don't even remember now. You know, in, in the UK, women have had the vote since 1918, in, in New Zealand since the 19th century. Um, so this idea that women are not full independent participants in uh, social society is, is extraordinary and abhorrent. But we tend to translate that to an automatic assumption that women in Afghanistan must all hate the Taliban and must therefore reject the set in the place in society that the Quran sets out for them. Now, you can argue that, of course, some of them may be brainwashed, if you want to use that, they may be under the coercion of a patriarchal society, all of that may be true, but some of them and of course, there's no way of knowing without you know going door to door polling, and I wouldn't advise that in Kabul at the moment. Um, there is there is no way of knowing how many of them are hand on heart, absolutely happy to be absorbed into a societal structure which they understand, with which they've grown up, and which provides at least some kind of safety for them. Um, I mean, yes, we can talk about the the, the appalling abuses of women who. Uh, who seem to to break some of the the laws of, of of Islam? We've seen horrible cases of women who've had extramarital affairs or even have been raped and have been blamed for the rape itself and all of that kind of thing. But what the Taliban are offering to the people of Afghanistan at the moment is security, because if the Taliban are in charge, then you're not going to have Taliban suicide bombers at every crossroads. I think there's another interesting point, though, here, and it's you, you touched on it earlier. Um, we're still very much in, in the denial phase where we're saying how dreadful the Taliban are, how grotesque their abuse of, of women's human rights are, um, how appalling a society they want to see and, and how we can't have any part of that. And that will always be our intellectual case. Um, but if you look at, for example, Saudi Arabia, 
no one is suggesting that women have a good time in Saudi Arabia. Yes, they have more freedom than those in, in Afghanistan currently. Yes, they can be educated. Yes, they can now go out driving on their own. Um, and, you know, as somebody remarked to me a few years ago, at least in, in Saudi Arabia, men and women have equal voting rights. Neither of them can vote. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen in Saudi Arabia a system which has gradually extended some fairly marginal freedoms to women and has done so in part, I think, because it, it wants to be accepted as a, a more progressive uh, Western-looking member of, of the, uh, the Muslim coalition in the, in the Middle East. But I think the final thing, just to, to put this in before you hand over to Gracias, is that we shouldn't be too self-deceptive about how hypocritical we can be or perhaps just dedicated to real politique. It's, it's all a matter of, of flavour. You know, if you say to me, will we be sitting here in 2030 uh, having successfully campaigned for uh, a human rights commission in Afghanistan? No, we won't. Uh, we might have shouted at them at the United Nations. We might have said we won't sell them fruit or something. But we won't have created those kind of institutions in Afghanistan, provided the Taliban are still in charge. However, if you ask me in 2030, we'll be sitting here buying lithium from them. Yes, we might well be, because by and large, memories and outrage fade. And you get to the stage where if you need to be in a trading relationship with somebody, generally you find a way to swallow that. The Americans, of course, have had two big exceptions to that. There was Cuba uh, since the, the, the fall of Batista in, in 1560, since the revolution. And from time to time, there's been Iran. Americans have these two great obsessions with Cuba and Iran. They will not deal with them in, in any way, shape or form. But if you look around the rest of the world, there are plenty of bad regimes. There are plenty of regimes who do things which we find abhorrent or which we would find abhorrent if we knew about them, but we don't. Uh, and yet we happily trade with them. Uh, in some cases, we sell them things which they may use to suppress their own populations. But we, we accept that while you want to be nice, you can't be nice everywhere all the time. Uh, so, you know, we may well be trading with the Taliban-ruled Afghanistan in 10 years' time. Uh, it doesn't mean we'll like it, but I think we will eventually see the necessity of, of doing it, even if we have to grit our teeth. Uh, actually, Elliot, that, that, that's a very interesting point. I love how you answered that question. That, that is spot on. Um, it's important to remember that uh, when you think about the Taliban, you know, they, they, their version of Islam is, is quite linear, if I can use the term. They're not really open to, they will never change or shift any aspects of what they believe is firmly aligned to their, their, their version of Islam. So we talk about human rights in, in general, not just women, but obviously women rights in this in this occasion. Um, they they would expect women to adhere to their version of Islam. Uh, they might, I don't know, they might to improve or appease um, uh, and attract uh, foreign direct investment, or actually down the line to actually. Uh, reduce sanctions and so forth, try to uh, establish certain, well, be a bit more lenient in certain areas to, uh, towards what they believe is, uh, uh, how do I say, it doesn't violate their version of Islam, but still uh, is, you know, punish those who they believe should be punished 
for violating what they believe is, you know, the version of Islam. To some point, the language I'm trying to say is actually that uh, it's going to take a long time before they even shift in any way. The, the, let us not be uh, blinded by their uh, current performances. They're trying to show us that, hey, look, we're, you know, we're, we're friendly. We want to want to give everybody the rights, the rights, women rights. And <laughs> it's, it's all performance. It's, it's all a show. Um, th- that is why women right now in, in Afghanistan are, are, are shouting and saying that we don't feel safe. We are afraid. Uh, actually, recently, if you, you see, you can fact check this. Uh, there's been women, uh, everybody just making sure that they have burqas like, as a default. There's not a single woman walking right now in Afghanistan without a burqa. I should tell you something. They're scared. They really are scared. They really are scared. Um, but with the international community uh, coming together and uh, through the UN as a body, uh, keeping the Taliban under a microscope, I think it would actually tr- trigger them to start to be much more practical and, 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 and start to be a bit more lenient down the line. But in the immediacy, I highly doubt. So women right now uh, are going through a lot right now in Afghanistan. And it's very concerning. Uh, another thing I wanted to kind of clarify is actually that when you look at the, 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 the Taliban and, and why, why they're, they feel more emboldened right now, uh, you know, the, the support that they have, they feel that this is why right now, politically, they want to show the world that, hey, look, we are stable. We're, we're going to, we want to create a stable Afghanistan where there's going to be laws that are fairer. Um, uh, we will still punish those who commit crimes under our laws, but we will be considerate as well. And uh, what we will notice overtly in, in general over time is that certain of these practices being much more hidden so that you won't really hear it in the public eye, you, you won't see it or hear it, uh, but it's happening behind the scenes. So they're going to be more covert in those areas. In the same token, uh, what's going to happen is that the intent of all these is, is to show that, look, we've made promises. They're going to be like, we've made promises to, uh, to individuals uh, or countries that are interested to uh, uh, support our, gov- our new form government. Um, and in a sense, to ensure that we protect those relationships, we will uh, start to show ourselves as much more diplomatic and much more organized. So that's what's happening right now. In, in, from a Western point of view, and I would say precisely in the US, UK, and across the Western alliances, we want to really focus more on other areas. Uh, and uh, Afghanistan has, Afghanistan seemed, from, from a Western point of view, stable enough for us to move out. We felt that, okay, well, we've done our job here. Uh, what else is to be done? Do we keep on investing in roads? Do we keep on? It just became, it just, there was no clear strategy. There's, clear, there's no clear benefit of still being there. Um, and so when, 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 when things started to move the way they started to move, the only option that seemed logical was to go, well, you know, we're going to empower them to protect themselves, defend themselves as much as we can, 
and then we're going to look at an exit strategy. And that's exactly what happened. But the reality is actually what we did not expect as the West uh, and all Western uh, 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 NATO allies is for that to happen this quickly. And again, the suspicion actually highlights again, review what's happened. It's a big, it's, it highlights again that yes, uh, the Taliban are organized, but again, not that organized. It takes, it takes, I mean, yes, they, they, they're, they are sophisticated. Yes, strategically, they have a lot of military experience. Now, I totally, I totally agree with you. They have a lot of military experience, tactical experience. They understand the terrain, but to orchestrate something like this, this quickly, wow, that is, you need a lot of support to do that. And definitely there's a lot of proxy activities behind, behind the scenes in that sense. And that's what I want to conclude in, in regards to that, Thomas. Some of the reports that we've received is, uh, of course, of women and children and families trying to escape via the Kabul airport, yeah. but anywhere else. And um, and I think that very much goes along with uh, uh, Gracias, uh, your comments and Elliot as well about the uh, the general state of anxiety and fear that many women will be feeling in Afghanistan. Of course, what confounds the problem is how fractured Afghanistan is, and uh, and in that regard, we have had uh, terrorist attempts at Kabul Airport, and of course, the successful terrorist attack, uh, which killed uh, people as well, uh, trying to evacuate. Highly alarming news, of course, but I want to focus on the so-called ISIS-K, which has been at the heart of uh, of these terrorist attempts at, at the Kabul Airport, and. Um, and what is the fear that we should be feeling here in the West that this could spill over here as well in a repeat of the types of incidents that we had seen in the last decade? Should we be fearing retaliation from groups such as ISIS-K? And, um, and are we to believe that the Taliban have become more modest towards the West in comparison to ISIS-K? Should we fear them both equally? Will Afghanistan be a safe haven for more of the sort of terrorist radicalizing that led us there in the first place? Elliot. Thanks, Thomas. I think we need to be a little bit careful about this because I think we need to understand just how long ago pre-Afghanistan was. You know, if we're talking 2001, if we're talking about somewhere where you can radicalise people, where you can keep them together, where you can feed them a diet of misinformation and propaganda, and where you can also train them in some of the, the things they might want to do to cause terrorism. 20 years on, to be honest, we've got the internet for that. You don't need to be radicalised in the Tora Bora Mountains, you can be radicalised in your bedroom in Leeds or Bradford or Sheffield or anywhere across the country. Uh, you know, the internet is more than capable of providing you with that misinformation and propaganda on a drip feed carefully targeted at you. And if you are the sort of person who is likely to be radicalised, and that tends to be in the UK at least, young men who feel disenfranchised and left out of society and effectively without a role, then, you know, you will find these things on the internet and therefore it falls to our cybersecurity uh, systems and, and agencies uh, to, to do a lot of the work to 
to screen that and also to use it to catch plots much earlier in the, the execution. I think one of the problems is, you know, one defence of our 20-year stint in Afghanistan has been that we haven't had any terrorist attacks launched from Afghanistan over the past 20 years. And you think, well, no, but it is, a you know, an absolute basic maxim of archaeology anyway, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We have had terrorist attacks in this country. Obviously, the most obvious was was June 2000, uh, sorry, July 2005. Um, we've had the Westminster Bridge attacks more recently, but we've also had any number of attacks which have not taken place because of very, very good work by the security service and by the police, uh, based on intelligence from from across the the intelligence community. One of the great problems of living in a Western democracy is that you can't talk about your successes, which lead to things not happening. You know, the best day MI5 will ever have is when 10 bombs don't go off. But they can't talk about that because very often they will compromise ongoing investigations or they will demonstrate how they foiled them. So I think we're at a stage in the UK, I wouldn't speak for the US not living there, but in the, in the UK, I would say we're at a, a stage where the actual terrorist threat or high is one with which I think people can live. And I don't personally think that the Taliban returning to power in Afghanistan is going to make a, a significant impact on that, simply because if you want to blow people up in London, you don't need to go to Afghanistan to learn how to do it. Uh, Ashley Elliott, you're spot on. Uh, definitely, because actually, uh, the, the, in terms of ISIS-K, ISIS-K is an interesting case because uh, the, their their agenda is is quite aligned with ISIS, but they they're just another arm. To keep it simple, uh, they're more of a threat than 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 the, than the Taliban right now. I think the only challenge right now is a lot of people right now in Afghanistan, and just another security concern we should be aware of is that a lot of people in Afghanistan feel that we've let them down, and this this also would create a scenario where uh, these groups can actually uh, recruit more individuals who will be motivated down the line to cause us harm. That's where I've become very concerned. And I believe that uh, uh, from a security standpoint, that it be in the UK and across the, the NATO alliances, it's something that everyone's thinking about. And down the line, uh, we have to be very uh, aware that their recruitment campaigns will be very directed towards those who've been uh, hurt. Uh, in, his, in the same token, uh, uh, ISIS-K and the Taliban are sworn enemies. They really hate each other. Um, they, uh, so that, that kind of puts a scenario, for example, where um, the Taliban, should the Taliban, I mean, the only thing we can hope on, from, from, from a Western point of view, if you look at it uh, geopolitically, is that the Taliban, let's say in a metaphoric sense, you know, literally are moving in a more positive direction. They're more open to democracy. They might not be completely open to democracy, but certain aspects that will actually allow the country to be stable, uh, where human rights um, is maybe not completely uh, 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 adhered, but at least there, 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 is, there is some fabric of, of balance into in, in the social economics. You know that can open uh, uh, a scenario where 
for example, we continue to hold the Taliban accountable. You've promised this. You must fulfill this. In the same token, they become now a buffer to uh, uh, keep the security balance uh, across. But the, what we should be aware and be concerned is actually that uh, ISIS-K is here. They're here to stay for quite a long time. They're not going to go anytime soon, but we need to push that forward. We need to push those agenda, those, those security uh, agendas forward. Um, as, as, government, as, as governments across the West, I believe that it's a big focus right now to monitor their activities, but also to ensure that uh, you know they're not using the current situation to, to actually propagate things, which is quite inevitable. They're doing it already. Uh, if we were to look at it uh, strategically, uh, ISIS has been hit hard, and they're not as strong as they used to be. That's the good news. I'm very happy to hear that, by the way. Uh, but they're still a threat, and they're starting to spill over across the continent of Africa. They're starting to form more alliances in the continent. Uh, and uh, not only in the continent, but all the way to uh, the Pacific. You're looking at also, for example, the Philippines uh, has had their share of, of such activities. Will that go away? No, it's going to expand. Uh, but uh, we need to also be aware that uh, these groups are, are always supported. Uh, when I say by proxy groups, it might be direct or indirect uh, through private companies and so forth. All the way to direct governance. So it's 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 a challenging uh, scenario, but in some cases the the ISIS K, for example, um, the support they have allows them to uh, spread in a way that that is difficult to track. It's not like, for example, you look at the. Uh, I mean, obviously, with online propaganda, which is the main kind of method that they use to recruit. And, and, and so forth. And Ellie is spot on. You don't have to go to Afghanistan. Folks don't have to go to Afghanistan more to be trained. They can be radicalized online. And they, they know exactly how to do that. They're, they, they are successful in also uh, using a lot of uh, shell uh, companies to acquire from raw minerals, convert raw minerals into cash, and inject that into, into, their, into their cause. So it's important to be aware of this. And I think, I think from a... From, from a strategic point of view, uh, it's going to be an ongoing observation from, 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 from a security point. Everybody's keeping an eye on them. I mean, uh, you look at how the Taliban has actually responded with uh, the, the, the bombings at the, the Kabul airport. Uh, it tells you a lot about, you know, that the Taliban themselves uh, regard them as a, as a threat themselves. And if they're thinking, well, hey, look, um, you know, these guys are causing trouble. Let's keep an eye on them. And what the Taliban wants to show the people of Afghanistan is they want to find a common enemy everybody can, everybody can kind of rally together and focus on so that it gives them strength in their, in their, in their mission. But they, that's what's going on right now in regards to that. Thank you, gracias. Jumping on to the next topic, which has to do with the publicity of the Taliban, both here and at home. Uh, and I say this because in recent weeks, there has been... Um, 
quite a high number of, of what I can only describe as baffling TV interviews between Western media outlets and Taliban representatives. And I put this uh, under quotation marks because, of course, uh, the Taliban is still to confirm a, a cabinet and a government. But it includes the live filming of, uh, in one case, a small village tribunal under uh, the Taliban law or Sharia law. And in, in this particular instance, I, I believe it was uh, the case of... Uh, a suspected thief who stole, I believe, a sheep from a, a nearby farmer. I'm not sure if uh, any of our audience has, has seen uh, yes. the, footage, the footage in question. Um, and uh, But, you know, this joins another series of, of sort of what I like to think of as picture-perfect high-end televised interviews, uh, such as CBSN, I believe, uh, from the States, between Taliban officials and high-profile uh, American uh, news uh, outlets. Are we to see this as a as a theatre of sorts? Because I'm not sure if we if if it is achieving the kind of communication and dialogue we would like to see, or or whether it serves simply in in from both perspectives the further mystification and demonization and putting even more fog into the equation, or not? Perhaps does the panel believe that this is a way forward in that? We are committing to dialogue and we're finding a path forwards. Now, Elliot, I believe you work closely in PR. Uh, so I'm very curious what your take on, on these uh, high-profile interviews might be. Well, I think we need to be clear about who the we is in this case, because I think we live in a situation now in which the press no longer sees itself, rightly or wrongly, as an arm of the government country in which it is based. So I would think, you know, CNN, CBS, NBC do not see themselves as representatives of America in a generic sense. Fox News might, but that's a slightly different, slightly different approach. So when you say, you know, are we doing a good thing in talking to the Taliban? Well, I think journalists would argue, and I think I'd probably agree with them, that they are doing a good thing because they are providing more information, more detail, more it's a horrible word, but granularity. They're, they're essentially putting a face to what we have always thought of as, as some kind of amorphous movement. So, you know, instead of now talking about the Taliban, we might, we might in a few months end up talking about that guy from the Taliban I saw on Newsnight or, you know, the guy with the beard. Well, that wouldn't be a particularly uh, striking signifier among the Taliban, I grant you. But I, I think the press would say, the media would say, that they are simply opening up the Taliban to the same scrutiny that they uh, apply to Western governments, to Western militaries, uh, to to the government of Afghanistan before the, the fall of the Ghani regime uh, in, in August. Um, and in a sense, you know, if the Taliban wishes to be the recognised controlling faction of Afghanistan, if it wishes to be treated as the government of Afghanistan, then why why shouldn't it be interviewed by the best that the BBC and CNN can, can do to it? Now, I think we need to be careful, though, that we don't regard this as some kind of uh, measure of approbation on, on the part of, of Western powers, that we are not saying that oh, the BBC has interviewed you, therefore <clears throat> you are someone with whom we must deal. I mean, I think political judgments are entirely aside, but I think the the media will operate in a, a relatively value-free atmosphere, if you like. And I, I think a lot of people would argue, and I, I would probably be one of them, that they, they should do exactly that. From, from from a media point of view, yes, they're, they're most most of these media platforms are commercially orientated, so it's uh, they know exactly what 
you know how to tailor uh, or focus on certain 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 messages and certain certain cases that will uh, attract individuals to listen and, and to follow their the platforms. So that's the baseline on a commercial point. Uh, I think also on a government point, uh, on a government perspective, they, they, we also want to monitor what they're saying to make sure they're not saying anything they shouldn't say. That it could cause more friction uh, right now. So um, I think I think a lot of news platforms are more careful because they have a better understanding of the geopolitical impacts of certain certain messaging and so forth, and and, and especially the big disinformation campaigns and so forth. Ellie, I'm sure you'd agree they're, they're much more. They feel much more aware that their words and actions have a lot of impact. But to, to address what you've asked, uh, Thomas, uh, yes, the Taliban is trying to show themselves as the new Taliban. We're not the old Taliban. We're the much more calm, organized, composed uh, Taliban. We understand your fears and concerns, Taliban. But realistically, uh, how long will this stay for? Is this going to be for a while? Is this just a show? That's to be determined. When we look at the behaviors and patterns, I mean, you, you, you're going to a, uh, uh, a program and you have guys holding rifles behind you. That doesn't promote you know, human rights. Um, you can tell the person is, I and mean, recently you can check it yourselves, guys, this person is terrified and in terms of body language and microexpressions, he's showing fear and, and he's sweating. Uh, he's trembling as he's speaking. This person is scared. He's scared that he might say the wrong thing and afterwards there will be consequences directly or towards his family. So uh, the fact that, for example, BBC, for example, are actually interviewing them is good because actually it allows us to uh, understand, you know, what's going on and, and get a constant understanding of like, you know, what is what's going on on the ground, anything that helps. But in the same token, they're doing a lot of strategic propaganda. They're saying what they want us to hear. Uh, in the same token, we're, we're not stupid as the West. We know exactly what's going on. But I think there is uh, the area of hope is that um, by doing this, not only are we aware of what's going on on the ground, but we can also hold them accountable in terms of the promises. What are they saying? You said this, you've not done that. And that's very powerful because that allows, and I'm sure you agree, to even on a UN point of view and also on the international community to say, well, you know, they've, here's what they said they would do, here's what they've done, and here's what they've done, and constantly hold them accountable. Accountability is a powerful thing. If we don't do that right now, because uh, at the end of the day, um, that we look at it in any shape or form, uh, the reality is, is that they are there. And we will need to sit down with them more and discuss and agree and disagree. Um, they're now in charge right now, and that's the, that's a sad reality. Now, Grossos, you've you've mentioned doubts as to whether the Taliban that is very carefully portraying itself over these media platforms is one that uh, will necessarily stick around. And to that end, it reminds me of the the story of Mrs. Argand, 24-year-old uh, Behista. Uh, Argand, which uh, has come on the news sort of cycle lately because, uh, well, she's earned a lot of praise after uh, she was the first female news anchor to 
to interview a senior Taliban representative, Bortolo News. It's an Afghan uh, news outlet. And, uh, well, this was, as I said, the first time a Taliban representative was interviewed sitting across uh, from, a, from a woman presenter on live television. Later, she would recall that she trembled during the live interview, uh, but that she wanted to, and I quote, show the world that Afghan women don't want to go back, they want to go forward. Since she has fled Afghanistan, leaving guitar, and she is uh, the last I read waiting on uh, to see if she can move on to Canada or the United States after that in uh, evacuating and, and fleeing her home country after uh, one of these high-profile interviews. And I think there's a lot to dissect here, but it would certainly confirm uh, some of these doubts that, you, that you've been raising, Gracias. And I just wanted to... to Garner sort of uh, what the panel thinks about this story and whether we might be seeing more of these uh, mock interviews, as you will, uh, exposed for what they really are and the fear that is behind them and what we might expect of the future of journalism in Afghanistan. How, how do you see it, Elliot? I think the, the future of journalism in Afghanistan is is something that we're going to have to be very sceptical about because, you know, the Taliban, uh, however much they may try to be seeming like Taliban 2.0, they are by inclination uh, a repressive regime. They want to control people's lives, uh, society, mores. They want to control their behaviour, essentially. And so I don't think for a moment that we're going to see a free press uh, flourishing in, in Kabul. And I think the official pronouncements of the Taliban, like the propaganda of any uh, totalitarian regime, will have to be taken in the spirit in which it is given. You know, it, it may be indicative of their intentions. Uh, we may be able to to read between some lines or use it to verify other intelligence, things like that. But it is it is going to be anything like a free press of the, the sort that we have. Now, whether they are going to allow foreign uh, press or perhaps Afghan-born representatives of foreign-owned news services into Afghanistan is a very different matter. Um, the, the interview they, they, that you, you alluded to with the, the young female Afghan journalist was extraordinary insofar as it was a female journalist being allowed to, to interview a Talib. Uh, but... You know, I, I don't think that that individual Talib will have gone away from the interview and said to his friends afterwards, do you know, I've been thinking about all of this women's rights things and maybe they've got a point because she seemed very nice. Um, you know, these people are, if nothing else, pretty intellectually tough. They, <laughs> Their beliefs are not shaky. Um, but, you know, we deal with regimes like Cuba, like... North Korea, like China, uh, like all sorts of, of places like that, which don't have a free press all the time. Uh, we deal with dissidents of the regimes. We deal with, I mean, look at the, the situation in, in Hong Kong, where you have pro-democracy protesters uh, being put in considerable danger, protesting about various lack, lack of freedom. And you see now, uh, exposed much more than it was the activity of Chinese state-sponsored bots on Twitter, for example. So you will see tweets saying, aha, yes, the Americans say that, but actually the Americans have terrible societal problems as well. And you think, well, yes, but everybody can see through that. So, I mean, unless you're one of the particularly 
dim left-wing commentators who thinks that's a brilliant talking point, you see through it. And I think we'll we'll treat the Taliban in the same way. There will be some kind of Taliban newspaper. I'm sure there'll be some kind of Taliban TV, uh, but we won't trust it in the way we would the BBC or or PBS or or anything like that. And we we won't take it at face value, and we wouldn't expect it because we we deal and have dealt with for years organisations which. Uh, are professionally disingenuous, and that's fine because we know what we're doing. It's a good question, Thomas. One of the things that, that, that got my attention, guys, and this, this gives me a bit of hope, is the Taliban has stated that they want to improve relations with uh, the U.S. and allies. They really want to improve relations. They say we want to improve relations with the U.S. and allies. Um, this tells me that Taliban understands that if you do not improve relations with the West, there will be consequences and we can follow up with those consequences. It's the difference when some other country says there will be consequences. And then when we, the West say there's going to be consequences, there's literally going to be consequences. So they do, they are scared of us. And they, and, and they also, I wouldn't say scared in terms of fear. They, they have a sense of reverence and such a sense of mutual respect, which they recognize that we are a superpower. So I, I believe they're going to be careful about the propaganda. The propaganda might be much more tailored towards promoting a new start and showing the world that we are doing our best to shift the way things were before. The Taliban will always be the Taliban. There'll be certain things that will never change. But over time, we'll see for ourselves where they're going with this. But the fact that we're holding them accountable, again, that's the most important thing. Now, you did mention some interesting things, Elliot, spot on. Uh, you know, there's always going to be regimes out there that are going to be a bit extreme. Does it mean from a Western point of view that we don't think outside the box and go, well, hmm, let's see how where, where there's, there could be a common ground, especially when you have other partisans that are actually actively involved. You can't just be on a stand, you know, just, just behind the scene, just, just like on a, a fly on a wall and just hope things will be better. We have to, and Tom, I'm thinking geopolitically, we have to engage with such parties and look at uh, a common ground to uh, secure things uh, entirely. Now, when I think about it holistically, uh, the reality is that uh, this will not, uh, I would not be surprised if, let's say that, you know, three months from here, uh, that we're actually seeing positive progress happening in, in, in Afghanistan. And the Taliban's actually falling through because they do feel that they're under a lot of pressure right now. And uh, and our, we all have a common enemy, and that is uh, ISIS and ISIS-K. So uh, I think from that end, uh, what I do regret, and I'll be overt to share this, is that we've left a lot of equipment on the ground, uh, although some of these equipments are decommissioned and it does not allow them to use them. But to have them wearing uh, soft equipment looking Looking like that, I'm not happy. And nobody is happy to see that from a Western point of view. However, uh, you know, there is, there, there is hope that things will ameliorate over time as they are uh, doing the best to be in good behavior, if I can use the term. Now, we've, we've spoken about Afghanistan during this podcast. And I want to turn our attention just for a brief moment to the experience in Northern Ireland, because it stands to reason that Afghanistan is, of course, not the only country uh, that has experienced um, homegrown terrorism and, uh, and extreme violence over a protracted period of time. 
But there might be some clues in how Northern Ireland was able to deal with the situation in a way that protected people and prosperity and peace in the future. And to finish off our conversation today, looking specifically at the situation of Northern Ireland and the IRA and uh, the similarities that might exist in the situation between either of uh, Afghanistan and uh, Northern Ireland, what conclusions can we draw about how peace uh, is secured? What conclusions can we draw about the role that religion plays, perhaps ethnicity plays, uh, partitioning plays, as the fundamental building blocks from which we might arrive at a more peaceful, prosperous tomorrow? And can we extrapolate some things into Afghanistan, or is the panel of the opinion that we are essentially having to draw up a completely uh, new list of uh, tools uh, that, that we can apply? And is it is the jury still out, so to speak, or can we draw certain uh, conclusions from Northern Ireland? Elliot. Thanks, Thomas. Um, yes, I, for me, the, the priest process in Northern Ireland, uh, which we still have in, in place, although I understand perfectly why some communities who are being terrorised by paramilitary groups will say, you know, where is our peace? And I think that's an entirely legitimate complaint. The peace process, from my point of view, came about because two things happened in the mid-1990s, which pushed society in, in the direction of acceptance of some kind of deal. The first, I think, was a realisation by the IRA that there was no obvious way towards military success. They were not going to win the, the battle for Northern Ireland on the streets. That simply wasn't going to happen. The security forces were becoming more and more capable. They were becoming more and more able to penetrate IRA units. They were becoming more and more able to exploit the intelligence they were gaining from that. And the IRA was struggling. And there was a clear recognition that a military way forward no longer existed. But on the other hand, I think the people of Northern Ireland, entirely understandably, after more than 25 years of conflict, 30 years of conflict, arguably, 300 years, arguably, uh, came to a position by the time of the, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, that they were willing to give away a lot of theoretical rights, responsibilities, or sign away a lot of debating points, if you like, simply for there no longer to be war on the streets. Because by 1998, you had a whole generation of people who had grown up since the trouble started in the late 60s, who had known nothing but the army on the streets, police carrying rifles, roads being closed because of explosions, um, you know, certain parts of, of Belfast and Derry and then the, the, the border counties like Fermanagh and Tyrone simply not being safe. And when the prospect of that just going away was put in front of them in 1998, I think there was a wave of hope and a wave of, of relief that swept over the, the population and which led to the endorsement of the, the Good Friday Agreement by such a considerable majority and with, with most of the major uh, parties and with the exception of the DUP, very much in favour. Now, we're now 25 years on from the, the Good Friday Agreement, more or less. And I think what we're starting to see now is that 
the way in which the population grabbed at the possibility of peace has certainly delivered a much lower death count. I mean, you know, Northern Ireland today is a world away from where it was in the 90s. Uh, you know, Belfast and, and Londonderry and other cities are transformed into modern, dynamic, bustling centres of population, arts, culture, all that kind of thing. There are still serious economic problems, uh, which are very deep-seated, but which are at least, in most cases, being recognised, if not yet addressed. But the point is, you can walk down the street in Belfast and you won't be shot, probably, and you won't be blown up. Um, and that's created a whole new culture. But we are now seeing that actually a lot of what was wrong with society has just been sublimated. So the involvement of paramilitary gangs in drugs, in armed robbery, in general sort of uh, thuggism and, and racketeering has been exposed now. And what we're seeing is that we have a police force in Northern Ireland, police service in Northern Ireland, I should say, the SNI, transformed from the RUC by the Patent Commission, which is really struggling to do its job. It's not trusted by both communities. Arguably, it's now more trusted by the Republican and nationalist communities than it is by the loyalists and the unionists, which is a strange old, old business given where the RUC came from. But we have a, a policing system that is struggling. We have two communities who don't see equal division of the spoils of peace. Uh, and we have you know, a lot of simmering resentment and social and socioeconomic problems, which were suppressed by the Good Friday Agreement and the economic opportunities which flooded in when peace arrived. And I think what we're seeing now, after nearly a quarter of a century, is that it's very much still a work in progress. So to tie that into what you're saying about Afghanistan, can we learn anything from there? I don't think there's a huge read across because essentially you were fighting, uh, you were observing a, a contest between two rival sectarian groups who may have had vicious internecine problems, but essentially wanted the same thing to live in peace, but were arguing about the jurisdiction under which they did that, whether it was with Northern Ireland as part of the UK or Northern Ireland as part of a unified Republic of Ireland. And I think when you look at some of the civil wars and the disturbances across the Middle East and Central Asia these days, those seem to come from poles apart compared to the sort of gulf which uh, the society in Northern Ireland has had to bridge. So I think there may be some on-the-ground operational things to be learned from Northern Ireland, but I think overall in the sweeping strategic arc, I think it is quite different, and I think we need to be careful about uh, attaching too many learning points from it. I mean, uh, Elliot, I, I love how you, you, you broke it down in terms of what's happening in, in Northern Ireland right now. Uh, the IRA as a dissident group, they, they're, they uh, I mean, we all know that their agenda is quite clear. Uh, they, they believe in a unified uh, um, Ireland. And, uh, you know, right now with the current current developments, especially with a um, uh, post-practice scenario and the, the, the UK now having left the EU, uh, it's it's... And certain new policies, and and and, and uh, they're, they're they're observing that carefully and saying, well, if certain things go in a direction that we don't we're not happy with, well, we will stand and and fight back. So there is a new IRA that is right that they are rising. Uh, recently, there was reports that they bought arms from Russia, 
uh, and that's been exposed. Surprisingly, apparently, Russian uh, government actually exposed that and said, well, look, uh, they, they bought weapons here. Uh, here. Here you go. Uh, it's kind of very rare to see that because in most cases, they don't share that. <laughs> uh, there is still, uh, 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 if you look at it observably, um, the situation is quite intense. Uh, and I, when I see such gestures, I still I still take a pinch of salt because uh, uh, one end they're kind of smiling and say, oh, look what we discovered. But in the other end, they're using disinformation to divide and misinformation. So I'll leave it there for, for that end. Uh, but the case in, 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 in terms of the IRA and also Northern Ireland is, is very fragile. Will there be an escalation? I highly doubt. The reason why, because um, the, the, the relationship between uh, both sides of, of, of the spectrum has been very rich. I know it's not always been perfect, but we've, we've worked hard to maintain this balance and unity. There'll be those who try to promote division, but realistically, as a nation, we're, we're strong, we're strong, uh, we're, we're united. I think what does concern me is that on a, uh, if, I don't want to briefly touch on this, because if, if, if there's any lessons learned uh, in terms of re religious uh, influence and so forth, um, it's, it's, it's always a complex issue. It's, it's something that affects every nation, and you have to look at it as uh, case by case. But if there's anything we can learn from this is actually that it does have an impact. And, uh, and, and I come back to what we discussed before, the, the, the power of information and how information is presented has a lot of effect on, uh, on how it keeps it. I mean, if you look at right now, what's happening across the, the country right now, and, uh, and the West, we're still dealing with the, the aftermath of such a, such a massive campaign that we had to go through from, from the disinformation, misinformation, and, and malinformation issues, it has hit us hard. Uh, and uh, people now don't know what they can trust and, and, and the information out there has been presented. Uh, the, the, the challenge we have here in the UK as, as a nation and also for there to be uh, families, uh, businesses, NGOs, and so forth. We've now left the, the EU. I mean, I, I still, I personally, I, I, I Again, personally, this is a personal opinion. Uh, I support whatever we choose to do. If we choose to leave the EU, that's good. and it's good for the UK, okay, it's good for us. Um, but when I look at it entirely, we're now in a new kind of era, a new kind of phase of things. So, uh, the, the, you know, the, there are folks out there who want to divide the country, and they believe that that gives them leverage in certain ways. Um, but also, I think, realistically, in the same token, uh, if you look at it geopolitically, um, everybody has their concerns, and there's, there's a lot of things we're trying to focus more on right now in, in view of a, a post-COVID scenario. COVID-19 still affects certain parts of the world. Uh, some countries have dealt well with it, some haven't. If you look at right now, the tensions right now in Europe, uh, I think... Uh, a lot of activities from certain proxy groups, and I dare to say from Russia, are, have had a, a massive effect on in relation with the relations uh, among uh, West, Western uh, countries. So uh, Europe is going through through a lot right now, and we hope things will cool down.
uh, with right-wing extremism that's been actually rising on the back end of that, uh, that now uh, creates a scenario where uh, you know, it's difficult to sit down as before and negotiate things more smoothly. The NATO alliances has been hit hard during the Trump era, and uh, people blame Trump for a lot of things, but little be noticed, there's a lot of activities behind the scenes that have caused that. So, uh, you know, I don't support Trump or support Trumpism. I think that the whole concept of it was, again, disinformation <laughs> and the intent to divide the West and create tension amongst so um, we need to be aware of these realities. And my only desire and prayer is that, you know, we keep on pursuing unity during this phase because the, it, our greatest strength as the West is in our union. As long as we're united, as long as we're, we're able to sit together, we don't always agree, but as long as we sit together and focus on our mutual interests to push things forward together. That's the key to our unity. That's the key to our success. Businesses are affected in, in, in several ways because now with the whole situation right now, where there's instability in certain parts of the country, it makes it difficult to attract invest investors. So uh, the aim is to look at ways to ensure stability is, is across the nation, but also with uh, talks about a uh, second um, or, uh, referendum, even here, even like in the north of the UK, like in Scotland, uh, th that people are concerned with that. So we hope that won't, won't happen in, in Asia before. Thank you, gracias. Um, I know it's often difficult when analyzing a breaking situation, a complex situation, whilst we are still in that developing situation. Um, it is always easier to view a fire when it is quite far away from you, as opposed to when you are standing in the middle of it. And that's why this podcast today had uh, certain challenges in how do we make sense of something that is inherently complex and developing every day, every hour, and adding more complexity to, to that story. But I think both of you have done a wonderful job today in, in highlighting not only some of the issues that we have to face now, but going forwards in dealing with the reality of, uh, as Elliot said, a Taliban 2.0, and uh, trying to make sense of the world of tomorrow. So to that end, I wanted to thank you both for a brilliant contribution uh, today and, uh, and trying to make sense of this and trying to offer different uh, uh, solutions and um, different ways of approaching uh, what will surely be a slightly more complicated Afghanistan and its relationship to the West. Thank you both so much for joining us today, and I very much hope to have you on the next podcast. Thank you for having us, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for listening to this episode of K Voices. This series focuses on finding decisive solutions to critical problems. If your business, your organization, or yourself face a similar problem, please reach out to find out how we can work together. If you have a skill, talent, or zeal for solving problems, K Enterprises would be thrilled to know more about you. You can get in touch by writing an email to team at kenterprises.biz. This is your host, Thomas Brancaso, and I hope you are as eager to listen to our next episode as I am to host it. Thank you once again, and I wish each of you a great day.